Thanks, Jonathan. Yes, friends, certainly. No doubt or question about that. And I hope you'll be more than simply friends of Bonhoeffer by the time we finish this evening. I hope that you'll be as impressed uh, by Bonhoeffer as I am. Not, not simply a question of being impressed. Uh, if I think of theologians from whom I've learned, or Christian leaders from whom I've learned, Bonhoeffer comes very, very high on the list. So it's less a question of being impressed by, although he is impressive, than learning from. And I hope to, um, to convey his thought tonight in such a way that you also will feel that he has a great deal to teach us, to teach the church today. Now, I think it's actually appropriate for us to be doing him after we did Foucault uh, last week because the, the question of power was one which came uh, to prominence at the end of the talk and had come in earlier too. And Bonhoeffer has a very famous sentence, some of you may have heard, only a suffering God can help. God helps us by his weakness. And that uh, hooks in to Foucault. I'm not going to be making much of that sentiment of Bonhoeffer's, actually, although I'll mention it again before the end. Maybe the particular connection of Foucault, uh, even more than that, will be in this respect, that uh, at the end of the last session, you talked about the need of the church to respond to the kinds of things Foucault was saying. <clears throat> more than once the question was raised, about how then should we as a church think about questions of power. And here, in terms of the church, if not narrowly simply on the question of power, in terms of the church and what the church should be, Bonhoeffer has a great deal to say in response to Foucault more widely than the question of power. Bonhoeffer is a theologian of the church, and what that means will become clear. Now, I found myself a little bit concerned after the first two that I did that I was giving too little time to Christianity in response to modern thought, that I was spending too much time on modern thought. And tonight, therefore, it's appropriate that we are looking at a Christian. So we're spending the whole time looking at a Christian thinker, unlike Freud and uh, Nietzsche, and, of course, the two that David has done, Darwin and Foucault. <coughs> the impression can too easily be given, I guess, that modern thought is something which is non-Christian or anti-Christian. Perhaps unwittingly we've given that impression, or perhaps actually it's a correct impression up to a point. Because certainly if you think of the thought that's been making the pace in modern times, you'd have to think of non-Christian and anti-Christian thought. But of course, that's not surprising because... People such as the ones we've considered and others come up with novel points of view. And while Christians want to think and keep on thinking and develop their thought in all kinds of areas, we're not really wanting in one respect to come up with great novelties in one respect. We believe that God created, that humans are sinful, that Jesus Christ came to redeem us, that we are all accountable to him, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, and there will be new heavens and new earth. Now, you don't want to ring variations on that. You want to, of course, explore its implications. But if someone, a Christian thinker is going to come up and say that in the 20th century or 21st century, he or she is not going to get a lot of attention. There have been great Christian thinkers, the equivalent of any other thinkers in terms of intellectual capacity. Let me just mention three of them. I am getting on to Bonhoeffer. I haven't completely forgotten him already, but I'm just going to digress, if it's possible to digress at the beginning of a session. I'm going to digress for about five minutes here. Um, here's Hermann Doiverd, or Doiverd, a Dutch jurist and philosopher. He's from the Reformed stable. Reformed is used generally for Calvinistic it's actually not quite the same thing, but I'll use the word reformed or Calvinistic. A, a, a mighty thinker, I mean, someone who was thought of as the greatest Dutch philosopher ever, including a name some of you may have heard of, Spinoza in the 17th century. There are philosophically knowledgeable people who say that Doiviad is every bit as good as, in fact, better than Spinoza for sheer philosophical power. 
Then there's Bernard Lonergan, a Catholic. It shows you can wear a clerical collar and still be happy. There he is. At Lonergan's 4th and 20th century is massively intricate, good, complex, rigorous Christian philosophical stuff. Now, if I were to ask you who is the greatest Christian thinker and writer of all time, I wonder who you'd say. Sorry, don't embarrass me. I'm starting to blush already, okay? My apologies to all Danish people present here. Well, at least there's one Norwegian person here. I couldn't get the little symbol that put the slash through the O. 19th century thinker, Kierkegaard, Danish, but really discovered by the wider world in the 20th century. Some would say we've never seen a finer mind in Christianity. So we have thinkers of this caliber, but they're not the ones we have been dealing with, and their influence has been, on the whole, less wide than that of uh, less great than Darwin, Marx. Sorry, we haven't done Marx. Darwin, Nietzsche, Freud, Foucault. But I mentioned that. The, the Christianity has a rich heritage of high-powered intellectual thought, philosophical and theological. The greatest influence on Western thought uh, after the biblical uh, writers on Western Christian thought was Augustine, whose domination, the domination of his thought for centuries, he was 4th century and 5th century, the domination of his thought was quite remarkable. Are we looking at someone of great intellectual power? Then you have Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. Thomas, as a Christian thinker, engages with the philosophy of his day very, very effectively. Where he sees philosophers having good things to say, he incorporates those in the Christian faith and thinks critically about them, rejecting those things in them which he thinks incompatible with Christianity you're not going to get more philosophically powerful thinkers and theologically powerful thinkers than Augustine and Aquinas and Kierkegaard, for example. So they're all there. And I would not like us to give the impression uh, that somehow Christians are simply second-rate intellectually reactive and all those things. It's a question of the way in which modern culture has been shaped and that's been largely by non-Christian thinkers. Hence, David and I have uh, selected them, with the exception of Bonhoeffer. So let's move on to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, his name will be known to many of you here. Bonhoeffer, of course, was executed at the close of the Second World War for his part in the plot to assassinate Hitler. He stepped out of one of the detention centers in which he'd been confined. He'd been moving for some time with a group who were fleeing from the Allies as they came in. Uh, his prisoners and he and other prisoners, uh, his guards, sorry, and his fellow prisoners moved. And he was called out one day, a prisoner Bonhoeffer came out. Out he came and he strung up with some chicken wire there and executed his last known words were, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. Uh, that's how Bonhoeffer ended his days in perfect peace and composure to all appearances. He impressed all concerned with that aspect of him. And uh, because of communications at the end of the Second World War, indeed through the Second World War, um, his family didn't actually know about his death until they heard a memorial service to him broadcast from London because he had international contacts. And since his uh, execution, uh, largely, though not entirely, the result of letters and papers he produced in prison, published under the title, Letters and Papers in Prison, Bonhoeffer's influence has been absolutely fantastic. The Bonhoeffer industry, if I can call it that without trivializing his, uh, the kind of achievement he had, the Bonhoeffer industry has been rather remarkable. And I just want to single out two or three things about it. Um, well, you can't single out two or three things, can you? I'll say four things about it. Firstly, Bonhoeffer's impact has been global. You'll find work written on Bonhoeffer and the church struggle in South Africa. I've seen a book recently on Bonhoeffer in Poland. All parts of the world where Bonhoeffer's thought has become known by Christians have found his thought applicable. 
Secondly, Bonhoeffer is distinctive in that people of very different viewpoints, theological viewpoints, have been able to draw on him. People whose theological position would be called conservative and traditional, people whose theological position might be called radical, those of us who don't like the polarity of radical and conservative, people in between all those or or represented from all groups have found Bonhoeffer to be um, in some way a stimulus and making an important contribution. I can't think of any 20th century theologian at all actually who has had such a a range of influence in that respect. Uh, People from all points in the theological spectrum have uh, been drawn to him. Thirdly, the interpretation of Bonhoeffer's thought is controversial. I'm going to try to avoid the controversy by uh, staying with those things that can fairly clearly be, clearly be affirmed, but there is disagreement on how to read Bonhoeffer, probably particularly his late work from prison. And uh, the, the work from prison, the, the ideas he began to put forward there, um, were, after all, fragmentary. So you don't know how you would develop those ideas. It's not surprising that people, therefore, of different persuasions will pull them in different directions. And it is hard to know exactly how to interpret some of that material. Fourthly, I think that what impresses almost all people who are exposed to Bonhoeffer is his integrity. Actually, he was a man of great intellectual ability. He was a very, very fine theologian indeed. But what is more remarkable than that was his integrity. His Christian integrity, integrity in Christian discipleship, is something remarkable, quite remarkable, and quite naturally and rightly, therefore, draws people to him of different stripe. Now, Bonhoeffer was born in... Breslau, you'll often find, um, that's the German for the Polish of Wrocław, and he's born therefore in present-day Poland, uh, and he was uh, from a family that was extremely cultured family. The um, father was a, a very high-powered psychiatrist, and the Bonhoeffer family was very, very used to having people from culturally elite groups in the house. Uh, They moved, actually, when Bonhoeffer was about six, they moved to Berlin when his father took up an important appointment in psychiatry. But you're looking at a culturally aristocratic household. And Bonhoeffer himself um, had it all, in a sense. He was a good athlete. He was a good musician. He had a very fine mind. So he had all this a delightful background, and he was a most attractive person as a person. I mean, Bonhoeffer, despite all this, um, you have to say class in a certain sense, if you don't dislike that word. Despite all that, he was actually a very down-to-earth, very humble kind of person, had a great ability to relate to people of very different social backgrounds, in a natural, not a forced way. The family life was shattered by the death of his brother. His brother went out and died in the First World War when Bonhoeffer was 12 at the end of the First World War, shattering, as you can imagine, for the parents. The the mother just was apparently in bed for weeks afterwards. The father wouldn't speak. Well, one of many sad stories in the First World War. And it seems to have affected Bonhoeffer greatly. Now, the the home, you'll find different accounts here. The home wasn't particularly religious in one way. It wasn't a church-going home. Bonhoeffer very seldom went to church as a child and even as a theological student, as a matter of fact. Very seldom. But you've got to balance that with the fact that there seemed to have been regular um, family devotions in the household. And uh, amongst the people, you know, there were people working in the Bonhoeffer household outside the family, amongst those who were Christian influences. So although there was a distancing from the church, uh, there was some sort of Christian nurture, albeit maybe 
on, on the father's side, perhaps a very formal affair. It's hard to tell exactly, but nevertheless, it, it was there. So the, you had that formative influence, a non-churchly kind of Christian nurture, broadly speaking, you could say that. The story goes, and seems quite reliable, that when Bonhoeffer was a teenager in school, the school teacher suddenly asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? Bonhoeffer, to his own surprise, perhaps, certainly to the surprise of the teacher and fellow pupils, said, I want to become a theologian, which took everyone aback. Why did he want to become a theologian? His brother's death seems to have had a lot to do with it. It meant he was thinking of the question, big questions of life and death. And that seems to have impelled him and driven him in that direction. And Bonhoeffer's the kind of person who, when he set his mind to something, did it. And did it very, very effectively. The result is he did, therefore, become a theologian uh, and studied uh, theology, wrote a thesis, a doctoral thesis, very young, an exceptionally mature thesis on the doctrine of the church. His work, in many respects, could be defined, I think, as a search for understanding the church, to search to understand the church. Now, he was affected by a visit to Rome. This is before he completed his uh, doctoral thesis. And it seems that there in Rome he became struck by the possibilities of church. And this is what he said. Now, he was from a Protestant uh, background, uh, Lutheran background. There is a word that when a Catholic hears it, he says this after Rome, when a Catholic hears it, kindles all his feelings, the his is Bonhoeffer's language, all his feelings of love and bliss. It stirs the depths of his religious sensibility from dread and awe of the last judgment to the sweetness of God's presence and awakens in him feelings of home, feelings such as those that only a child feels for its mother, well, it's appropriate, Mother's Sunday, of gratitude, reverence, and devoted love, the feelings that overcome one when, after a long absence, one returns to one's home. There is a word that stirs up these feelings. I deliberately put this in smaller font, italics, and faint. And there is a word that among Protestants has a sound of something infinitely commonplace, more or less indifferent and superfluous, that does not make their hearts beat faster, which they associate with a sense of boredom, or at any rate, which does not lend wings to our religious feelings. And yet, says Bonhoeffer, our fate is sealed if we can't acquire a new or perhaps very old meaning for it. Woe to us if that word does not soon become important to us again, if it does not become a matter of concern in our lives. You may have guessed what the word was. Yes, church is the word whose sense we Protestants have forgotten. Now, I don't know how appropriate you think that is for our own day here in third millennial Northern Ireland, or the Republic of Ireland for that matter. This is 1920s, Bonhoeffer thinking of the connotations of the word church for Protestants and Catholics. Bonhoeffer's life uh, was shaped by a number of influences, and after doing uh, studies, further studies after his doctorate, he went to New York. And he's influenced by his time in New York, studying in the seminary there. This was the time of the Harlem Renaissance. The Harlem Renaissance, or sometimes called the New Negro Renaissance, at one stage it was called that, or the New Negro Movement, sorry. Where there was a lot of lively music around, and Bonhoeffer, this cultural aristocrat, from a German family, turned up uh, in Harlem in uh, an Abyssinian church. Abyssinia was the old uh, word, of course, for the country of Ethiopia. Black Ethiopian congregation, 
Bonifer turned up there and he was very struck by what he found. He actually did some teaching of Sunday school there. And he found this entirely different experience of Christianity from anything he'd found in his rather stuffy Lutheran inheritance. And uh, from that time dated his concern, deep concern, which had been growing before for the poor, the oppressed, and the underprivileged, and those who are lower down um, on the ladder of society. From that time, of course, also dated his love of Negro spirituals. He loved these. I mean, he brought them, he would play them to theological students. One wonders what theological students who were used to Beethoven and Mozart and Bach and Wagner thought of Negro spirituals. But Bonhoeffer brought them back anyway. And uh, the, the, whole, the whole way in which Christianity was formed in a congregation such as an Abyssinian Baptist congregation in New York, in Harlem, that had a deep, deep impact on Bonhoeffer, an enduring impact. Back he came in 1931 to uh, Germany, took up a position uh, lecturing in theology, and after these years, let's say 31 to 33, two decisive things happened. One is, of course, the rise of Hitler. Hitler didn't become Chancellor of the Reich until 1933, but he'd already acquired a position of political authority or power uh, before that. And Bonhoeffer, like some others, watched uh, very anxiously. Not all were anxious. Some people had no idea what was going to happen at all and thought Hitler was a good thing, of course. But Bonhoeffer grew increasingly anxious by what he was seeing of the signs of an autocracy, of a, of a lordship which Hitler, if he came to power, would exercise, which would use up the lordship of Jesus Christ himself. Bonhoeffer and others began to get worried about this. The second thing that happened at the same time was that Bonhoeffer became a Christian. They might say, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, we're missing something here. We thought he was. Well, this is Bonhoeffer's way of talking. When people talk about people becoming Christians, it's usually people of a conservative stripe who use that language. But people who write on Bonhoeffer who are not conservative will use this language because Bonhoeffer had a kind of conversion. He put it that way. Of course, his experience in New York and before that meant that he was shaped by Christianity and had a kind of uh, integrity of Christian commitment. That's certainly true. But from Bonhoeffer's standpoint, something was missing. Something happened inside Bonhoeffer he wasn't the kind of man who would display his feelings easily or talk about inner feelings. But what happened, it's fairly clear, as he said very economically and briefly and non-dramatically, he said he was converted in the sense that he read the Sermon on the Mount again properly and decided he had to follow this path of discipleship completely and properly. Conversion for Bonhoeffer was conversion to discipleship. I think about that, you know, in many contexts, including the context in Northern Ireland, where it seems to me sometimes that the word faith has been substituted for the word discipleship. Think of the question, have you come to faith? If I asked you that tonight, how would you respond? Have you come to faith? Does that sound like a different question from are you a disciple? Questions shouldn't really be different. But they sound different, don't they? It's as though we've substituted faith for discipleship, and that's one thing that Bonhoeffer did not do. The unity of faith and discipleship is actually a deep, deep unity in his writing as well as in his uh, personal experience. So with Hitler rising and Bonhoeffer coming to a Christian commitment in relation to discipleship, you have the formative factors in Bonhoeffer in the early 30s. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, of course, the, the story of Germany in the 30s would be known to, to many people here, no doubt. It's a story of Hitler's increasing uh, oppression 
Uh, the Jewish people, of course, weren't alone, but they were prominent amongst those who suffered. And Bonhoeffer began to develop a spirit of resistance and deeds of resistance. In 1934, the Confessing Church was formed where there were people who felt uh, in the Lutheran churches, and Hitler had actually united the Lutheran churches in a way under his own presidency. They weren't united before Hitler brought them together. But people from the Lutheran churches who felt that they were compromised uh, under Hitler's policies in relation to the church formed uh, what is called the Confessing Church, uh, which wanted to confess Jesus Christ as the sole Lord in the thrilling declaration, the Balmain Declaration 1934, Jesus Christ as the one Lord whom we obey in life and death, as opposed to the Führer, Jesus as the one Lord. Uh, the language actually is Karl Barth, who was a Swiss national who shaped that declaration, uh, but the Confessing Church, it was a declaration which, which gave the basis for the Confession Church in Germany. And the feeling of part of many people was that really you're going to have to take theological students out of their university setting for doing theology if you want to train them for pastoral work in this new situation. You're going to have to set up seminaries which are confessing church seminaries in which to train pastors in this particularly dire time as Germany becomes more and more uh, a place of uh, horror and of oppression and of violence. And hence, what happened was that in 1935, Bonhoeffer headed up a seminary, seminary moved location actually, but um, he wrote about it in a book called uh, Life together, about which I'll say a word in a second. But here they are, seminary students. That's a bit faded, isn't it? Um, there they are, meeting together to talk and discuss. And in his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer gives a very striking description, actually, of the uh, life in the seminary. They lived there together, at least many of them. Some of them traveled. And it's a short book, and you'd think of the title like that, Life Together, that it's only for people interested in Christian community, uh, particularly Christian community for people studying to be seminary, um, out to, to come out of seminary as pastors. But actually a book which is applicable to all people. Anyone interested in Christian life should read it. Marvelous cameos of the daily life of discipline and devotion and reflection. It is only reading... Um, Life Together many, many years ago, when I first read it, I've read it since, only reading there that, that it struck me that I had totally ignored in the Psalms the significance of the difference between Psalms which talk about the morning and Psalms that talk about the evening. But Bonhoeffer said, you know, let's read morning Psalms in the morning, evening Psalms in the evening. It seems obvious when you look back at it, but he, he related Psalms to the times of day in which they were supposed to be sung and said. He believed that people should confess their sins to each other. Not in any sort of showy, demonstrative way. Not that, that the last thing that would be characteristic of Bonhoeffer, but actually it's good to spend time with somebody else confessing. So the seminary students thought, yes, this is a good idea. And then Bonhoeffer came up to one of them and said, of course, I've got to confess my sins as well. Can you imagine? How do you felt, Jonathan, if in union... I come up to you and said, we need to confess our sins to each other. Jonathan, will you hear me confess my sins? I don't know how you'd have felt. You're a good guy who can roll with punches, but even you would have been taken aback a little bit by that, I think. Well, this is, and union is relatively informal. We call each other by Christian name there. I mean, this is Germany in the 30s. Herr Professor Bonhoeffer does not confess his sins to a student. Oh, but he did, because he needed to, as far as he was concerned. That's the kind of person Bonhoeffer was, and this is the discipline he uh, instituted uh, in uh, the community, life together. Many of those students, uh, sadly, you know, lost their lives afterwards uh, in the Second World War, that little group of students. 
the uh, Gestapo shut it up in 1937. They were very suspicious of what Bonhoeffer was up to, training these pastors out there near the Baltic, near the Polish border. And Bonhoeffer wrote at the end of his time, before, as the Gestapo was closing it, he published perhaps his best-known work. It's translated into English into the title The Cost of Discipleship. But the title really is Discipleship. That's the proper translation of the German. Cost of Discipleship does convey the meaning of uh, what he's saying, but it's not the actual title of the book. And perhaps the most famous sentence in the book in which he outlines the nature of discipleship and then offers an extended commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps the most famous sentence is this one. When Christ calls a man, again Bonhoeffer's language, thirties, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. For Bonhoeffer, of course, that became literal. He talks also in that book of suffering as the badge of discipleship. Very, very powerful language. Suffering as the badge of discipleship. And what he attacks, and this takes us back to uh, the connection I made earlier between faith and discipleship. What he attacks is put in very powerful language uh, in the opening of this book, at the very beginning of the book. These are sentences from the first page of the book. I have read beyond the first page, by the way, but these are sentences from the first page. Cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace as bargain basement goods. Cut-rate forgiveness, cut-rate comfort, cut-rate sacrament, grace without a price, without costs. It is said that the essence of grace is that the bill for it is paid for all time. Everything can be had for free, courtesy of that paid bill. What would grace be if it were not cheap grace? Cheap grace means justification of sin. Not just justification of sinner, justified by faith. Oh, it's justifying your sin as well. Because grace alone does everything, everything can stay in its old ways. That's what he fought against. Cheap grace. Grace for God is costly in Christ. It's free for us. Free but not cheap. But we take it as something cheap, says Bonhoeffer. The, um, the book Discipleship makes several references to Kierkegaard, as a matter of fact. And Kierkegaard writes something very along those lines in uh, the 19th century, the first part of the 19th century, about the Danish Lutheran Church. Kierkegaard makes a very, very interesting observation. Kierkegaard was a strong Lutheran, as was Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer admired Kierkegaard. Both of them admired Luther immensely. And they were committed, heart, soul, mind, and strength, to justification by grace alone. So they don't doubt that. Grace alone... Uh, justification by grace and justification by faith alone are central to them. But the misunderstanding of it troubled them both the same way. Kierkegaard makes an interesting observation. Kierkegaard said uh, Luther made a great patient, but he wasn't a good doctor. That is to say, if your soul is in torment, as Luther's was, from trying to do the works of the law, then to hear the justifications by faith alone is a liberation. It's just what you need as a patient. But if you go around telling people who don't feel the weight of their sins, justifications by faith alone, by grace alone, you're okay, that's dangerous for a doctor to do that because it simply settles you where you are. Interestingly, Bonhoeffer doesn't quote Kierkegaard saying that. Whether he was acquainted with that sentence, I'm not sure. But uh, Kierkegaard said, great patient, questionable doctor. And what... Bonhoeffer wants to do is to make Lutheranism a religion which holds fast to justification by faith, but unites that with discipleship and the cost of discipleship. That is what Bonhoeffer is about.
Well, um, the, <clears throat> the seminary then was shut and Bonhoeffer moved towards active participation in resistance to Hitler. That was extremely difficult for him. The, the Lutheran tradition, the Lutheran church tradition stemming from Martin Luther, has always had a particularly high regard for those in authority. It has talked about the, uh, the importance of obedience to those in authority. The Calvinistic tradition, to which the Presbyterian Church in Ireland belongs, um, has had much more um, space for resistance to authority, including um, armed resistance on occasions. The Lutheran tradition has been much more subservient um, to state authorities in that respect. Not only that, but Bonhoeffer was a pastor. For a Lutheran pastor to consider getting involved in an assassination attempt, conspiracy and assassination, was massive. Particularly someone with the conscience that Bonhoeffer had. But he felt that uh, in Germany people were looking at such indescribable evil that in the end, through contact actually with his family, his brother-in-law, he got drawn into the circle of those who sought to assassinate Hitler. And he felt that you just sometimes have to do something and ask God's forgiveness for it. You become guilty from doing that kind of thing, but you have to ask God's forgiveness. Now, we might want to talk about whether he conceptualized that correctly, if I can dare say that of someone who got involved in this kind of action whether he thinks rightly about that. But in any case, that's what he thinks, that uh, there are times when you've got to take upon you responsibly some actions for which you must ask God's forgiveness. But there's a horror um, here um, in Germany which he felt drew him into it. Well, he became conspirator. He became effectively a double agent because he was with German counterintelligence um, uh, Germans thought that when he was, uh, that is a German uh, political authorist, thought that when Bonhoeff was traveling around Europe, what he was doing was actually pretending to be on the side of uh, allies in certain respects, but actually functioning as a kind of double agent, whereas actually Bonhoeff was doing was supporting allies, telling them what to do, suggesting they did this, that, and the other. He was, which is hard for him, he was a liar of the first order. And it preyed on him that he had to do this. People have attended the fact that conspiracy to assassinate means murder. For Bonhoeffer, it wasn't just that. It was untruth. Regularly telling untruth. That's what troubled him. So um, he was arrested. There he is. Eventually arrested in 1943. Detained in different places. That's one little detention center where he was cooped up in that room. Um, he wrote a, a poem. I don't have time to read it through because I want to move on to some um, analysis of his thought. But um, he writes a striking poem called Who Am I in the middle of all this? He's asking the question, who am I? This is what people's impressions of me are. They tell me I'm going to be calm and so forth, but inside I'm different. I'm restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage. Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. That's how he finishes. He has an identity crisis, because people think he's great, he's peaceful, he's calm, he's courageous, inside he's different. And so he asks himself who he is, whoever I am. He says, I am thine, with the older translation, I'm yours. Worth reading the whole poem, Who Am I? Well, um, finally, um, the Allies moved in. Um, you know, just a few hours later, Bonhoeffer would have been liberated. But a few hours before the Allies got to that group of prisoners with their guards, um, uh, Bonhoeffer was, as I said, executed on the 9th of April, 1945. And there followed afterwards, over the years, this remarkable literature that came out, his letters and his papers from prison. 
And in those letters, you can tell what toll it took on him to be involved in this conspiracy. This is what he writes in 1943, ten years after Hitler had come to power. This is shortly before he's actually arrested, but he and others were, one, were awaiting. They thought they'd be arrested at some time. They were. Now listen to this, and he wasn't a man given to exaggeration or rhetoric. One may ask whether there have ever been before in human history been people with so little ground under their feet, people to whom every available alternative seemed equally intolerable, repugnant, and futile. The air that we breathe is so polluted by mistrust that it almost chokes us. We have been silent witnesses of evil deeds. We have been drenched by many storms. We have learned, and this is the untruth, the, the lies you have to tell in this kind of occupation of his, we've learned the arts of equivocation and pretense. Experience has made us suspicious of others and kept us from being truthful and open. Intolerable conflicts have worn us down and even made us cynical. But you know where that took him to? He said to himself, if he survived the war, having got involved in assassination and lies, are we still of any use? If we have become this kind of person, these kinds of persons, are we still of any use? That's in his piece after 10 years. It's a disclosure of the uh, inner state. Uh, yet, um, he had, along with that, a commanding and remarkable piece and composure. That's the kind of piece, of course, which is won in the, in the heat of violent inward struggle very often, as it was in the case of Bonhoeffer. But he wondered what good he and the other conspirators would be, conspirators would be after the war was over, if they survived in a, in a post-war Germany where there would be a social reconstruction. What are we good for now? We've become these kind of persons. I don't think we um, appreciate uh, the importance uh, of that sentiment of his enough. The church is on his mind in prison because he thinks that the church has now got to change. I said that his thought was circling around a lot the question of the church. He thought hard about what kind of place the church should be. And he wrote in prison an outline for a book, which, of course, he never um, succeeded in writing. And this is what he says in his outline for a book. I simply quote some of the sentences. The church is the church only when it exists for others. To make a start, it should give away all its property to those in need. The clergy must live solely on the free will offerings of their congregations or possibly engage in some secular calling. The church must share in the secular problems of ordinary human life, not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell all what it means to live in Christ. Do you and I have the integrity and courage even to consider that? You might say it's a question I should ask myself. It is, of course. I'm a minister, albeit in a teaching place question with Jonathan and myself and Steve and all of us have to ask ourselves, you know, is this the shape of the church to come? Yeah, interesting idea, isn't it? I don't care if it's an interesting idea. Is it true? Is he speaking any truth at all to us here? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Or are we going to play with ideas endlessly? Bonhoeffer was not one to play with ideas. We don't know what he would have done or said when he left prison if he'd survived of course but this is the thinking this is the shape this thinking began to take and I was talking to Peter McDowell I'm delighted that Peter is here and uh, he might have some thoughts to contribute afterwards it's Peter's wife by the way who's the Norwegian presence in our mix, midst and, uh, you, are, you are Norwegian aren't you? Swedish oh, oh, oh I'm sorry well I suppose it's better than calling a Norwegian Swedish isn't it? Anyway, uh, I'm so, so sorry. I'll tell you why I thought you were Norwegian, because your name is Ossa, 
And as a child, I heard Osa's death, which is Greek. Greek is definitely Norwegian, let me tell you that, okay? Anyway, where was I? <laughs> yeah, of course. Peter McDowell. Um, Peter and I were talking a little bit about this uh, just uh, last week, a couple of weeks ago. Bonhoeffer was, we, we don't know w- which way his uh, ideas were developed, but he is credited with thinking in terms of a new monasticism for the church, where the church should think more in terms of effectively small groups, effectively, I suppose, concentrating on prayer and righteous action, um, maintaining the whole Christian liturgy, but doing so in, in a way which um, means that the church is visible at the heart of the world, not the kind of monasticism that pulls the church out of the world in a way, but kind of life and community, quite possibly, he's thinking of, which nevertheless is community in the middle of the world, an effective community. As though throughout Belfast, what we did was to say, look, look, there are Christians all over Belfast. Well, now, let's divide up Belfast geographically, and not just Belfast, of course, but we're here, so I'm talking about Belfast. Let's divide it up geographically. There are Christians in this area, this area, this area, this area. Let's divide it up and let them form communities all over the city of a visible kind. Let them pray, let them act righteously, let them be right in the middle of life there. Doesn't work very well with different denominations, of course, does it? So it's also a challenge to denominationalism. One of the things I'm drawing to a close. One of the things which challenged Bonhoeffer during the course of his conspiracy also was the question of where is Christ's Lord? Because in Lutheran thought in particular, there's a great emphasis on Christ as being Lord of the church, but God as being Lord of the world. In the church, there is forgiveness, grace, faith, and Jesus Christ rules. But outside the church in the world, God is the Lord. He rules by his law, by, uh, by command, um, through government. So the lordship of Christ in the church is different from the lordship of God outside the church in the world. It's in the church you find faith and grace where Christ is Lord. Bonhoeffer found himself puzzled because the people who joined him in the resistance were very often people distant from the church. Church people were capable of compromise. Church people were capable of allowing Hitler to get rid of pastors who had any Jewish blood in them, any Jewish ancestry, and they were capable of just going along with that. But there were people outside the church who thought there are values here of truth and of justice and right and wrong that we must stand by. And Bonhoeffer says, I found these people, when I talk to them about Christ, they're very open. But talk to them about the church, they love nothing. Positive to say. So where is Christ Lord? Because if within the church there are people who don't do his will, and the people outside the church who do do his will, how are we to define his lordship? And, and some of the controversial uh, uh, matters surrounding the interpretation of Bonhoeffer has to do with the way in which he was taking this kind of thinking. And we don't actually know where he would have ended up with it. He didn't compromise for a moment on the importance of grace and faith and the centrality of Christ. Those remain, but he's trying to think through the relationship of those things to a host of other things, such as his experience of conspiracy. Bonhoeffer knew that the West was hurtling into an abyss. And with this, I close. Because I think these words are, uh, sadly, timely words for us. This is how he writes. This is in what would have been his greatest work had he finished it, and is his greatest work, though he did not finish it, his ethics. He wrote it in prison but never completed it. This is how Bonhoeffer writes. And there are certain aspects of Bonhoeffer's work in prison, including famous ones I've not brought out at all. It's just limitation of time. This is how Bonhoeffer felt about 
things happening in his day. The early 40s by now. The Western world is brought to the brink of the void. That's the void, the abyss. The forces unleashed exhaust their fury in mutual destruction. Everything established is threatened with annihilation. This is not a crisis among other crises. It is a decisive struggle of the last days. The Western world senses the uniqueness of the moment at which it stands and it throws itself into the arms of the void while the Christians talk among themselves of the approach of the day of judgment. The void towards which the West is drifting is not the natural end, the dying away and decline of a once flourishing history of nations. It is once again a specifically Western void, a rebellious and outrageous void, a void which is the enemy of both God and humanity. As an apostasy from all that is established, it is the supreme manifestation of all the powers which are opposed to God. It is the void made God. No one knows its goal or its measure. Its dominion is absolute. It is a creative void which blows its anti-God's breath into the nostrils of all that is established and awakens it to a false semblance of new life while sucking out from it its proper essence until at last it falls in ruin as a lifeless husk and is cast away. The void engulfs life, history, family, nation, language, faith. The list can be prolonged indefinitely for the void spares nothing. I repeat those words because I think we have to ask whether what was becoming true in 40s Germany is becoming true on a wider scale in the West. That's one reason we need to hear Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How should we resist? Not with force or with strength. Only a suffering God can help. A God pushed out onto the cross in his own world. And so we come back, I think, to one way or the other anyway, the kind of concerns, David, you introduced us to at the end of last session and the, the direction, the very helpful direction as I found it in which the discussion went afterwards. We have to ask ourselves what situation we face today in terms of the dismantling of Western Christianity. And I want to leave you with a very striking sentence from Bonhoeffer. This is what he says. The suffering of the church is infinitely more dangerous to the spirit of destruction than the political power that it may still retain. I simply leave that without further comment for you to reflect on.